Our sermon reading from the Old Testament comes from Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, You see that the children has the, that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my slave. It may be that shall I shall obtain a children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Your slave is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Matthew. This is uh, chapter 27. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come down to save him. Then Jesus cried again in a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holiest city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified. And said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And our sermon text, which mercifully is a little shorter, is from Exodus chapter 2. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help rose up to God from their slavery. God heard their groaning. and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. So we are continuing our study of the book of Exodus, and today we are working through the conclusion of the second chapter. 
Now, our text is only three short verses, but these three short verses are some of the most significant in all of the Old Testament. Uh, And we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's think back, first of all, a little bit of recap. If you think back to the first sermon I did in this series, I introduced Exodus by noting uh, a really striking fact, which is that God does not make much of an appearance at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And this is pretty surprising since we've just read Genesis where God seems to be everywhere. In fact, it is only now... Uh, at the end of chapter 2, that God is introduced into our story. So, you know, this is our sixth sermon, and just now we're seeing God appear. Now, at the same time, all along, we've been seeing evidence of God's action in uh, the multiplication of the Israelites, the strengthening of the Israelites. And a lot of times Exodus is even using similar language uh, about creation from Genesis to describe what's going on. So it's not as though God is absent, but he is hidden. Uh, But what we have here represents a change. Uh, From now on in the book of Genesis, or the book of Exodus, God is going to act openly, explicitly, and powerfully. So this really represents a change from from an implicit to an explicit uh, actor in God. Now, uh, just to give you a, a little idea here, the last time God had spoken in our story is way back in Genesis, when God came to Jacob in a dream and told him to go to Egypt and be united with Joseph. So it's been quite some time in the past uh, since this all of a sudden appearance of God at the end of, of Exodus 2 here. And so this kind of makes it a lot more dramatic. And it also leads us maybe to ask a question. This is a question I asked. Uh, what has changed? What is it that makes God suddenly appear here? Uh, what is it that leads God to intervene in such a radical way throughout the rest of the book of Exodus? Now, if we look at our passage, it tells us that we read that Pharaoh died. Uh, So this was the Pharaoh who we've been talking about all along, who the Pharaoh who uh, Exodus describes is the one who did not know Joseph and introduced all the various schemes uh, to subdue and control the Israelites out of his fear. He saw the Israelites growing and multiplying, and so he developed various schemes to subdue them. And uh, the first words of the Pharaoh, uh, when he's introduced in this passage, were a discussion with his court officials about how he could deal wisely with the Israelite problem. Uh, And what we've seen through the last few weeks is mostly the book of Exodus has been portraying uh, Pharaoh is unwise. Uh, Pharaoh's schemes repeatedly fail. And the result is that the Israelites only become more numerous and grow more powerful. Uh, After this, it is here that we are told that this Pharaoh dies. And we're told that the Israelites groaned under the slavery and cried out. And this is the first time we really read about the Israelites really groaning under the slavery. So that means that this death of this Pharaoh did nothing to alleviate the the Israelites' suffering. And as we will soon learn, this new Pharaoh is going to be just as bad as his forerunner. Uh, significantly though, uh, like I said, this is the first time they've cried out. So something's changed here. And, uh, of course we read this and we know it's this groaning that causes God to act. But let's talk a little bit more about this. Like, why are the Israelites just now groaning? Well, you know, we can speculate a bit. Perhaps they groan because this new Pharaoh is more effective than the previous one. After, after all, the previous Pharaoh was pretty bad at his job. 
Um, perhaps maybe it was just that their hope was dashed. Uh, they saw this uh, regime change and they were looking forward to a new era in which maybe they would be treated differently and it did not come about so. So possibly the Israelites groaning is a result of their uh, crushed optimism. Now, while we can speculate on all these different causes, what is clear here, though, is that it moves God to action. And specifically to four actions that we are going to talk about in some detail in the sermon. Uh, If you look in your text, you see God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And those are really four very significant actions. In fact, uh, if anybody remembers when we've done the Passover Seder demonstration here, you remember that there are four cups of wine that are poured into Seder. And those four cups of wine are poured specifically because they symbolize these four actions. So even today, uh, if you are in a Jewish family and you celebrate Passover, you are recalling these four verbs from this passage. So that's why I say this is like a super significant passage. Um, God's heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So as we look at this passage, the first thing I think we need to do before we talk about this, we just need to take a step back. And and I think it's important to do this because one thing we need to understand is how the Bible thinks about God. And I say that because it's not necessarily the way we uh, in modern Western times think about God. Because, you know, we've been like really influenced by lots of things, by, you know, the Enlightenment and Greek philosophy. And so we don't think about God in the same terms that people back then did. Uh, we tend to think about God in very abstract, philosophical terms. Uh, we tend to talk about like God's nature and his being and his character, attributes. And we spend a lot of time in speculative debates, like, you know, talking about like, you know, what, what it means to be divine and, and all these different attributes. We talk about God's non-material nature. You know, we use words like non-corporeal and omniscient and omnipotent. Uh, those are not words, though, that we find in the Bible. And, um, you know, all of this, I think, actually comes from a good place. Like, I don't, I don't really want to be too critical of this because, you know, it's really important that we think about God in these, like, really transcendent ways that, like, we respect God's holiness. So I don't think this is entirely bad. But it's just that these aren't really the same kind of thoughts and questions that the Bible is really interested in. And I think it's important to know that because in many ways, the Bible is not the book like we would have written, okay? So if we had to be like, like, okay, let's explain God to the world, we probably would have come up with the Bible because it's just not what we think. Now, I think um, it's important to point this out because, you know, our familiarity with the Bible sometimes makes us forget that the Bible works in like a really odd way, okay? Uh, You know, I spend like a lot of time studying these texts in the Bible in depth. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that when I'm doing that, that strikes me is what I'm doing is really weird. Okay. And, and I mean, what I mean by that is like, I'm dissecting these texts, like in incredible detail. And I'm asking questions about this. And they're like weird stories about like dysfunctional Bedouin families that lived like 3000 years ago in like a place I don't know anything about and probably will never go to. I mean, that's weird. Okay. And not only that, but 
you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm looking at these stories is explain it to people in a way that they understand it, even though it's like really weird. I mean, we're going to get into one. We just read Genesis 16. That's a weird story. Okay. Uh, and then we want to draw some kind of principle from it and then like present it as though it's relevant in our lives. Those are really strange things to do. And I often wonder, like I think about this all the time. What happens, you know, most of the time when, when we have like a church service and I'm doing a sermon or something like that, it's like people who are like somewhat familiar. But like, what happens if someone who has no idea what's going on with the Bible and I'm like talking about like this ancient family and like, hey, let me tell you about what Judah did in the Joseph story. Like, that's really strange. But I think it's important as we think about this to think, you know, God chose this way to be known in the world through these weird stories. And what, what's really the key here is to get across that the way we know God is from stories, from narratives, okay? God is revealed in these stories. And when uh, God uh, participates in these stories as a character, we learn something about God's character, his nature, his beings, and his attributes within the context of these stories. And it's not through a work of abstract philosophy. You know, like I said, that's probably what we would come up with. We would, we would start using words like omniscient and omnipotent. We'd want to know all these questions. But that's not how God decided he wanted himself to be known as. Um, and instead, uh, what we do see clearly is we see God acting in these narratives in very concrete ways. And a lot of times, like, intervening in the world. He's bringing about transformation. And this is how God is revealed. And primarily it's through God's entering into the story and acting. You know, he, he uses actions. So think back to Genesis. In Genesis, God creates. He makes. He forms. God also promises. He swears. He, he makes covenants. God blesses. He gives. Uh, in the Bible, we're not told about God. We don't have God as though he's this abstract subject that we're told about. What we see, rather, is God showing us who he is and his actions. Uh, another way to put it is God is found in verbs, okay? Uh, Hebrew is like this language that's like very verb-heavy, and that's how we primarily know about God. It's through these verbs, okay? So that leads me back to our passage in verse 24, because what we have here. Are, are, are four verbs. And what these verbs do is more than just advance the action of the story. See, that's why it's important to understand this is how we know about God. Because these aren't just moving the story forward. These are also revealing something to us about the character of God. Uh, so let's look at these four verbs. And you know what that means. Time for... Word studies. Yay. Resurrection church fun. Uh, so first of all, let's think about the word, uh, the, the word God or hears. So, so we're first told God hears. So the, in Hebrew, the word for hears is Shema. And Shema is another one of these great Hebrew words because it has this really wide range of meaning. You know, in English, we have like a lot of really specific words that have like these kind of like well-defined like boundaries. But in Hebrew, they're like way more wide open. They don't have a very big vocabulary, actually. You know, 200 words in Hebrew, you can make your way through like a lot of the Old Testament. If you know 400, you're basically there. Um, but the point is that a lot of the words have this wider range of meaning that they have in English. So Shema 
certainly means hears or listens to, but it can also mean other things like pay attention to. Uh, it can be used uh, in the judicial sense, such as to hear a case that's being presented. And all of these different ideas are in play here, but I think most significant at all is what God hears. God hears the Israelites' cry that rose up to him. Now, the idea of hearing a voice that is crying out can be found uh, all throughout the Bible. Uh, particularly, uh, we see it, we, we already see it in the book of Genesis. So think back to the Cain and Abel story. You remember uh, Cain murders his brother Abel, and God hears the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. Okay, it's this like call for justice. If you think back to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, uh, the reason God comes down to judge Sodom and Gomorrah is because he hears the outcry of the sin that's being uh, perpetrated against the people. Uh, And so I think it's important to note, uh, too, that, uh, you know, it is God that's hearing this cry. But notice, though, something kind of like significant here. It's easy to miss because this is an example of the the dog that doesn't bark or or, uh, right. It's important to note the people are not crying out specifically to God. Okay, Uh, the Israelites don't address God here. This is not like a prayer of intercession or like one of the Psalms. Rather, the people are just suffering and groaning under oppression and God hears it. God is the one, and so the point is, God is the one that's taking the initiative in the hearing. The Israelites plea for justice, but they're doing so not in a specific way. Uh, But it's just their pain, their anguish that rises up to God as a result of their impression. And God chooses to hear it, to pay attention to it, to hear it like a case, like a judge. He hears a crime and he's going to act. So, second, God remembers. Now, uh, the word uh, here is zakar, and it's it's more straightforward. Uh, You know, it means just what we think. It means to recall or bring to mind. But here, the words the car, remember, is used in conjunction with the covenant, okay? Uh, It tells us that he remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, And what's significant about this is, uh, you know, uh, what what, uh, this goes back to Genesis when God made a series of promises to Abraham and his family. And these promises took the form of a legal arrangement called the covenants. So, you know, we've talked lots about covenants, but just, you know, short little uh, uh, recap. Covenants were like absolutely fundamental to the uh, fabric of the ancient Near Eastern society. They, they basically tied the world together uh, back then in the way that like our, like we might say the U.S. Constitution holds the United States together. Uh, by, and, and so by stating that God remembers the covenant, God is stating that God knows that he has made certain obligations to the Israelites and he intends to enact those promises. So remembering here is not just remembering vaguely or like I forgot a fact, but it's, it, it's a specific, it's a call to a specific action on the part of God, that being fulfilling his part of the covenant. Third, God sees. Okay, so see or ra can have a range of meaning like shma. It means see in the sense of vision for sure, which is like super important, right? Like vision, you know, eye doctors are cool, right? Um, But it can also mean things like perceive or consider or inspect. 
And so since we've seen already that, that Shema and Zakar kind of have this like legal sense to them, uh, you know, like Zakar is related to this covenant, which is a legal instrument. The here is like you're kind of hearing the case. It doesn't seem so far a stretch that we read Ra'ah similarly. And so one of the things you do in a legal proceeding is you look for evidence. So God has examined the evidence here. He has seen for himself the oppression. He doesn't just rely on a report. He actually sees what is being perpetrated by the Egyptians against the Israelites. And fourth, and this is probably the most important one, God knows. Now, the word in Hebrew here is, uh, is like great. Um, yeah, this is probably, uh, this has got to be your favorite Hebrew word, right? Yada. Yada, yada. Y- yada, yada, right? Yeah, yada. And it's, it's another one of those great Hebrew words that's got like a ton of depth to it. But I think, you know, and I won't be re- belabor it, but the, I think the take-home message here is that yada uh, is, to under- is not knowing so much as in like knowing a fact. You know, that's usually what we think of when we think of knowing. It's like, ah, yes, the Israelites are being persecuted. Noted. Uh, you know, like I'll get that right on the, you know, true false test. Uh, no, uh, yada here is like an intimate familiarity that is a result of experience. So, of course, this is a sermon. So let me illustrate this point using an anecdote from my childhood. No. Um, so growing up, my family, uh, because we were like super cool, used to meet my grandparents for dinner in a fish camp in Belmont, North Carolina. Okay. If anybody's familiar with fish camps, uh, that, that's my childhood right there. Um, now, when we went to this particular fish camp, which I don't even remember the name of, but they had a uh, placemat, right? And the placemat had like the state of North Carolina on it. It had like all kinds of North Carolina facts. Like it had like the, uh, you know, like state bird was the cardinal and the state flower was the dogwood and stuff like that. Brian, you've got to remember places like that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you, you saw those placemats. Well, it also had like these different facts about uh, North Carolina. Like, you know, it had a picture of like Kitty Hawk and said, you know, this is where the first uh, uh, flight took place. And uh, one of the things that I was always fascinated was the talked about Mount Mitchell and it said you know Mount Mitchell's like the tallest mountain on the eastern uh you know on the east coast and it was 6,680 feet tall okay now there's a big difference from knowing that fact that I read on a fish camp placemat knowing that Mount Mitchell is 6,684 feet tall and actually experiencing it well a couple years ago my family (laughs) had the uh, experience of actually feeling uh, what that was like. And uh, I'm sure they'll be glad to tell you how wonderful it was. But actually, like, walking on Mount Mitchell and seeing what that's like is a lot different. Like, that's the difference between knowing here and the sense of knowing a fact and, like, experiencing something in, like, an intimate way, okay? So, now, let's go back. Now, the whole point of this, though, is that in this verse, in these verbs, what we are seeing is not just God doing things. Okay, that's part of it. We're also seeing that, that God is being revealed to us here. His character is being revealed to us in these verses. Um, so, so what we see is that, that, that this character is active. This is where God breaks into space-time and he intervenes for his people. And so what we learn here about God is that God is concerned with justice. Uh, This God is not arbitrary. This God is not distance. 
Rather, he engages with creation and his people, and he does so experientially with full awareness. So this is, this is the kind of God that is being revealed in these verses here. And so um, that's cool. We learned a lot about who God is. But, you know, still, let's think back to what my, the question I started off with. What is it that, uh, what, what is the change that has caused this active personal God who is concerned to bring about justice in the world to now appear? Well, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper here. And you'll never guess where we're going to go to find the answer. Caden, if we want to understand Exodus, what do we need to do? Understand Genesis. That's right. We need to understand Genesis, right? So let's look back at Genesis 16. Okay, so Genesis 16 was the, 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 the Old Testament passage that we started with. And, and this is another one of these like dysfunctional family stories in the Bible that's absolutely bonkers, right? Because one of the crazy things about the Old Testament is it sets up this family, Abraham's family, and these people, and it says they're chosen by God, and they're like awesome. And then it presents them in like really not very positive ways. And this is absolutely one of these stories where they are not portrayed in a positive way. They're not heroes. Uh, so in our passage, uh, what's going on here is that Abraham's old and he doesn't have an heir. And that's a big problem because Abraham was wealthy and he had lots of stuff. And, you know, that's not to mention that God had said, God had promised him that his family would be the mediator of blessing to the entire world. So kind of a big deal that he has a son to pass this on to. Now, to solve this problem... Abraham's wife, Sarah, suggests, hey, why don't you have a child with my slave, Hagar? She'll act as a legal surrogate in my place. Now, that sounds crazy to us, but actually fairly common in the ancient Near East. We actually have found like legal documents that describe this part of arrangement, this arrangement. And so this was something that was like done. So... Abraham gets Hagar present. Now, I think it's important to note here, because sometimes we skip over this, no one ever asked Hagar what her thoughts on this matter are. Hagar is simply a passive vessel with no agency that is used for the purpose of others. She becomes pregnant. She has a child. And so after this, things go like completely about as downhill as you would expect it to go under this arrangement. Uh, Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar. She treats Hagar horribly to the point where Hagar runs away. And as she flees, she meets the angel of the Lord. Okay. Now that's a pretty big deal because this is the first of 65 appearances of this figure called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, the angel of the Lord plays a significant role. Uh, You know, we're, we're, it's kind of like a bit mysterious, but this angel seems to have a higher status than the other angels and even speaks as though it's God himself talking. So, so the angel of the Lord often refers to himself in the first person as God or Yahweh. And when he appears, that appearance is treated like a theophany, you know, this like divine like encounter with God. It's always a big deal. In fact, probably... I don't know, one or two weeks, however long it takes me to get to chapter three. Uh, 
we're going to see the angel of the Lord again at the burning bush. So when Moses comes to the burning bush, that's the angel of the Lord. And so this angel of the Lord delivers a message to Hagar concerning the future of her son, even bestowing a specific name on his son, Ishmael. Now, uh, a promise is made to Ishmael, but that he will be a wild donkey of a man, which like, sounds like really cool. Um, I always liked that part. Um, especially because like in like the King James, this is ass. And like when you're like in seventh grade, that's hilarious. Um, but now to us, that doesn't sound like a great thing to be a wild donkey of a man. But, uh, you know, wild donkeys actually kind of enjoyed like the special status uh, more so than they might to us. They were, they were known as the kings of the desert. Uh, so, so the idea that this prophecy is portraying here is that he would, Ishmael would enjoy this unparalleled freedom. So like probably like a wild stallion is probably like a better way to think about that. So Hagar is so overwhelmed by her encounter with God himself, that she bestows a name on God. She calls God El Roy, which means God of seeing. And Hagar is actually like the first person to name God, which is remarkable considering she's a slave, she's a woman, and she's a foreigner. Um, so what does that have to do with Exodus? Well, you may have already started kind of hearing some parallels, but like in a weird way, because there's lots of parallels to the Exodus story only backwards. Hagar is an Egyptian slave serving Sarah. Sarah's name means princess. Hagar's name means foreigner. So here, the matriarch of the Israelites with the name of royalty, who has all the power, is enslaving a foreign Egyptian woman. And Hagar becomes pregnant, which is a sign of blessing and fertility, which... Exodus 1 is all about blessing and fertility and people getting pregnant and having kids. Sarah becomes jealous and deals with her harshly. In Exodus, the Israelites are fertile, and the result is that the Egyptian king deals with them harshly. Same word in Hebrew. Uh, so these are like really, really similar stories. Now, what is important for our purposes is to notice the names. Okay, so Ishmael. Do you hear that? Sh Shema. Okay, Ishmael means God hears. It's the same word. You can hear the word for hear that we discussed earlier. Shema in Ishmael. Also notice that Hagar names God what? El Roya, which means the God who sees. It's the same word Ra that we talked about earlier. So in this story, God both sees and hears the impression, the impression that Hagar suffers. And the result of this is God becomes active. He personally intervenes through this figure of the angel of the Lord, in which the world is transformed by his actions. Ishmael will now be set free from Sarah's oppressions, and he will be blessed and become prosperous. So, again... How do these two, two stories answer the question of why God intervened so explicitly in Exodus? Well, I think the answer is, in both cases, God is revealing himself in dramatic ways uh, for the same purpose, addressing oppression. Oppression is offensive to God. And because, uh, it, it, because oppression, you, you remember, like, what is God's point for the world? To have, like, fertility, life, abundance, flourishing. Oppression is an attempt to stop that. 
to stop God's purpose for creation. So, so God is moved by this, and so moved is God that in both our stories, God breaks into this world, powerfully intervening. And in doing so, he reveals his character as the one who opposes oppression and desires freedom. And so, you know, God's acts tell us a lot about his character. You know, we, we look in Genesis and we see God is a creator. We learn that about God. God is a promiser. He gives blessing. We learn that about God. However, what we learn in the story of Hagar and the story of Exodus is that God is also a savior and redeemer of those who have been oppressed and enslaved. And soon God is going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And the first thing God wants them to understand about him is he is a God who frees his people from oppression. So, you know, the Ten Commandments, uh, which begins the new, this next covenant, starts with the phrase, I am the Lord your God who freed you from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. So the answer to the question is that God is revealing himself here because specifically because he wants them to know that he is the just defender of the oppressed who gracefully calls slaves to freedom. So central is that very identity of God that he is savior to the oppressed. Now, as our story in the Old Testament goes on, Israel will be told that they were slaves and they were freed and, 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 and be reminded of that fact over and over again. And so it's their duty to bring life abundance and flourishing to others. That, you know, like that's what the prophets were always talking about. They were warned, don't mistreat the weak and vulnerable precisely because you were once slaves and therefore weak and vulnerable. Now, Eventually, we know where the story goes. We know what's going to happen. As dramatic as this intervention in Exodus is going to be, there's an even greater one. Uh, One that the Exodus is only like a, a taste or a shadow of, where God is going to intervene in an even greater and more powerful and more direct way than even the angel of the Lord does. God takes the form of a human who has come to be a savior for an even deeper and more impressive bondage than the Israelites in Egypt. The ultimate opponent of life, fertility, and abundance, sin and death itself. And if we've been following the story, we know that of course it would have to happen that way because we know that God's gift of, of, of freedom to the oppressed is very central to the very identity of who God is. God is a creator and he desires life and abundance for his creation and promises that he himself will act to bring life and abundance for his creation. See, we're hearing those words over and over again. See, hear, remember, and know. However, God is also knowing, but he's knowing based on on knowing, as, as we talk about in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word expresses. He knows in an intimate and experiential way. So when God enters into history, he doesn't do so as a <clears throat> disinterested, objective observer. No, God comes as one of the oppressed. God comes born into a manger, you know, to this like refugee Jewish woman, you know, who's like being accused of adultery, you know, under the thumb of the Roman Empire. God specifically breaks in to, to that world. And it's so much so that God is going to be unjustly crucified as a criminal suffering a death that he does not deserve. God sees, he hears, he remembers, and he knows. And it is in solidarity with all the weak and vulnerable that Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, 
Many of you here know that Jesus is quoting the first line of a psalm here. It's actually the same psalm that we read in our call to worship. It's a psalm that begins with pain and suffering, but ends in triumph. It is about a person delivered and rescued by God. And Jesus quotes this line because his identity is with those who are oppressed and suffering. Jesus quotes this line because he has experienced the hiddenness of God that we saw at the beginning of Exodus that too many people in all of history have experienced too. And what God, what Jesus shows on the cross and what God is showing here is that he not only sees, hears, and remembers, but he knows. So for us, the Exodus can never just be a story. It's got to be more than that. Because in the Exodus, what we see is God revealing himself to us about who he is. That's what we also see in the, the story of Jesus on the cross. And so uh, very, at the very core of, of God's being and identity is, is not this, like, we don't understand this in like this abstract, concrete way. That's not the way that we're supposed to understand it. No, this is a God who hears and sees the oppressed and seeks freedom for his creation. And so it's up to us as his followers to look for ways that we can participate in bringing life, abundance, and flourishing to the world as well. And to do so uh, specifically for the oppressed. By doing so, what do we do? We practice resurrection. 